Welcome to episode 847 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Hello, Ben. Today we are talking about the Red Sox. Later in this episode, George Bissell will talk to Tim Britton of the Providence Journal. We are talking to Tim Britton's co-beat writer for the Providence Journal and podcast co-host on the Super 2 podcast, and also the author of the BP annual essay for the Red Sox, Brian McPherson. Hey, Brian. Hey, how are you guys doing? All right. So as you detailed in your essay, it seems like the Epstein and Charrington regimes have both kind of been marked and maybe ultimately sabotaged by this constant tension between wanting to build this long-term foundation and sort of operating in almost a small market way in, in some areas, and then being seduced by the big free agent and trying to put together a contender every year in Boston because it's Boston and that's what you're expected to do there. Do you think that that tension has now finally been resolved in favor of the latter approach now that Dave Dombrowski is around? Are they just going to be full free agents and trading for major league ready players forever now? I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I mean, it's hard to evaluate Dombrowski. Dombrowski's got, you know, two small market successes on his resume going way back to Montreal and Florida. Um, And then we've all seen what he's done in Detroit. The hard thing is I think a lot of people have talked about is separating what he did, um, what he did in Detroit between what he wanted to do and what Mike Illich wanted to do. Certainly so far in Boston, we've seen, you know, he, he comes in right away and spends $200 million on David Price and trades some prospects for Craig Kimbrell. But while he was making those moves, you know, he didn't trade away all the prospects and he didn't trade away the best prospects. And he said, and then stuck to the fact that he wasn't going to trade away all the prospects that, that some of these young guys, their hope is that they'll make that $30 million for David Price every season, you know, something that they can handle. So it, it's a tough balance and it's a, it's, it's a tougher and tougher balance for a team with money to spend money effectively. Yeah, certainly Theo Epstein has said over and over that, you know, being lured in by Carl Crawford and, you know, trading Anthony Rizzo for Adrian Gonzalez is, you know, one of those moves that you kind of look back on now and wince. Um, ben Charrington the same way. Seems like, you know, the signings of Ruzna Castillo, but especially Pablo Sandoval and Hanley Ramirez um, significantly contributed to his downfall. It's It's tough because there is this demand, especially for a team – whose most direct rival is the team that historically has gone out and spent the most money and signed the most free agents, even if, you know, even if the Yankees have pulled back, it has been tough for them to strike that balance. And it doesn't seem like there's been a willingness to to rebuild at all or willingness to take any sort of intentional step back. Yeah, they're continuing to plow forward, but I think the hope is that they can still supplement enough from within that they can that they can make this they can make the balance work. But that's been the trouble for the last, you know, four or five years. It's so interesting to to criticize or to spot as the problems their decisions to build a good now team because they they have. I mean, over the past five years going into this year, so the, the previous four, they finished in last place three times, correct? Yes. And Pakoda in those four years saw them winning 90, 86, 88, 87. And, you know, Pakoda is generally not altogether different from other projection systems. I haven't looked, but I'm guessing that if you were to look at Zips or if you even looked at the Red Sox internal projections, which uh, we got a reference to, I think, a couple years ago from Alex Sphere, they are probably very close to. So the projections have shown them being a good team all four of those years heading into the season. And then they're just, they're just been horrible three of those years. So do you think that there is something about these Red Sox rosters that uh, has actually been misleading to projection systems? Or is this simply, you know, three really bad spins of the wheel in four years? In a lot of ways, it is three really bad spins of the wheel. The challenge is that 
the lack of flexibility um, to do something about it. And that's something Charrington talked about when he made that massive trade with the Dodgers, um, unloading Carl Crawford and Josh Beckett with the help of Adrian Gonzalez, who was the guy that was worth the money that they that they signed up to big money to. It's it's tough because you look at the the theory has made sense all along. I mean, Adrian Gonzalez was one of the best players, one of the best hitters in the game. Carl Crawford was 29 and a well-rounded athlete that you figured would age well. Rick Porcello, they trade for Rick Porcello with an eye on the fact that a lot of pitchers kind of make this leap in their late their late 20s and it's hard to find pitching without spending $200 million on it. So you go get Rick Porcello and Joe Kelly, both of whom are like 25, 26, and hope that they're going to put it all together. Instead, they're both terrible. You go get Pablo Sandoval in hopes that the fact that he's you know, 27, 28 means that this downward turn he's been on is, is more fluky and that he's actually going to be a pretty good player for the next few years. You get Hanley Ramirez under the theory that anyone who can play a passable shortstop ought to be able to handle left field. Like All this stuff in a vacuum makes sense. The challenge is that when it doesn't work, when you've committed all this money, that what they're running into over and over, I mean, if the Dodgers hadn't bailed them out a few years ago, they'd be in even deeper. But they can't then say, okay, this isn't working. Let's try something else. You know, The fact that Travis Shaw has emerged into somebody who looks like he could be a solid big league third baseman. You know, you don't want to make too much of two months down the stretch. You don't want to make too much of spring training. But he's that sort of intriguing potential late bloomer that could be a useful third baseman, which is something you couldn't say about Pablo Sandoval last year. It's tough to make that move when you still have five years and, you know, 78, I think, million dollars coming to Sandoval. That's been the challenge is that, A, they've paid big money on these guys that haven't worked out, and then B, they haven't been able to make the plan Bs work out, in part because they've traded away prospects. They traded away Rizzo for Adrian Gonzalez, and part of it's because when you have these guys making this much money, you almost can't help but play them. So where do those two guys stand? Hanley, of course, has moved to first base. Seems like a position that he should be able to handle. Of course, people said that about left field also. And Sandoval, everyone has seen the unflattering photos, and you've written recently that he is actually in a battle for playing time with Travis Shaw, which is not something that you would have said a year ago. So what are the expectations for these guys going into 2016 and and also keeping in mind the, the many years that they are still under contract? The Ramirez thing has gone better than I think a lot of us expected it to go. I guess I went in without many expectations, but sort of on the cynical side, just because left field had gone so poorly for him. But he's looked pretty good. He's made scoops. He's had to come off the bag. I mean, the ironic humor of the whole thing is that the, the reason Ramirez has looked pretty good at first base is because Sandoval keeps making bad throws that he has to corral. <laughs> Sandoval has, I think, got four errors already. He'd have a couple more if not for um, Hanley Ramirez, but that has given Hanley Ramirez a chance to do what he really didn't do in left field last year, which is have to make some tough plays. You know, obviously Hanley Ramirez can catch ground balls. It's the other first base stuff, the stuff that we saw Alex Rodriguez struggle with a year ago when the Yankees tried to put him over there. That's that's what you were more concerned about. That's been good so far. And the fact that he was hitting up until he ran into a wall and hurt his shoulder last year sort of is a, another reason to believe that as long as he's healthy, he'll hit. And health hasn't been his forte, but you just you never know how that's going to go. Sandoval's in a tougher spot. His defense has looked bad. Um, his ability to come in on balls is throwing. It, it really hasn't looked good. And he's hit the ball pretty well. He's even hit the ball hard a couple of times from the right side. Um, and hitting right-handed was something he gave up on early, you know, kind of in May last season because it was just going so poorly. So he feels good offensively. The challenge is catching the ball. And Shaw is not an elite defender, but Shaw has looked solid on the routine plays. And, you know, I think defensive runs saved had Sandoval last year at a minus 11. And part of the reason they liked Sandoval when they signed him was because despite his size, he was a good defender. He wasn't just a kind of good defender for his size. He was a you know, slightly above average. He was a good defender, and they didn't see that last year. And that was part of the downfall for that starting rotation that, that became a lightning rod. So they need somebody at third base who can who can defend. The question is how Sandoval looks the rest of the way and into the start of the season. I still think he's going to start at third base on opening day. And the question also is how Dave Dombrowski looks at a contract that's not his contract because if Sandoval doesn't look good, it's a lot of money owed to him. But on the other hand, you have to think that John Henry hired Dave Dombrowski with the assurance that he's not just going to saddle him with this roster he inherited, that he's going to allow him to kind of build the team he wants to build. Hey, you guys want to hear an amazing fun fact that I just uh, just discovered while you were talking? Sure. The uh, Red Sox, the 15th highest war in Red Sox history, pitcher or hitter. 15th, 15th greatest Red Sox player of all time is Babe Ruth. <laughs> 
It's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I barely, I barely, like, I know that, you know, I know he was on the Red Sox, but you just think of his career really not even starting. Like, he was very young when he, anyway, 15th. When you're a two-way player, I mean, you get that. Yeah. I mean, just think if John Lester had gotten to play the outfield every every other day. Oh, yeah. No, he. I just would love to see John Lester throwing to bases four or five times a game and batting uh, four times a game. It'd be an amazing thing. Babe Ruth, more war as a, as a Red Sox than Carlton Fisk, tied with Nomar Garcia Parra. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, there was a time in uh, 2013 when we heard a lot about how much the Red Sox prized makeup and the ability to handle Boston and this sort of chemistry type stuff. And, you know, partly that was because they won the World Series, but uh, we heard a lot about it before they won the World Series. We won, we heard a lot about it the off season before that season. So this wasn't strictly a, uh, you know, riding the coattails of success sort of thing. Heard about it like a lot. And I don't really hear about it that much anymore. Is it still part of their strategy? Is it still something that they talk about as much as um, as we were hearing about it back then? I think they have to. I mean, certainly at the time when you're signing guys that they were counting on to bounce back, you know, Victorino, Napoli, those sorts of guys. I mean, part of the sell has to be on personality because the sell wasn't on their production the previous year. Um, but on the other hand, we've seen it. We, you know, it's it's hard to pinpoint why Carl Crawford went the way he did, but he just the Boston thing did not work for him. And maybe it's because he started poorly. And Theo Epstein has said this and Ben Charrington had said that too, that sometimes the beginning can, you know, can determine how it goes because if it goes poorly um, for some of these guys that they just don't bounce back and Sandoval looks dangerously like the same thing. I mean, Hanley Ramirez seems fine personality wise. He's not particularly well liked because he didn't have a good year, but that doesn't seem to bother him. Sandoval on the other hand showed up at spring training his first year a year ago and you know, obviously everyone was like, hey, look at this, you know, big fat guy playing third base because that was, you know, they hadn't seen Pablo Sandoval up close and personal and weren't sort of accustomed to the fact that that's the player he is. And he got so much got so much grief for it right away that he ended up, I think, challenging a Boston.com reporter basically to a fitness test against him. And that was just it was I remember thinking right right off the bat that this is not this is not the indication of a guy who's really going to be, ha- be able to handle the scrutiny that comes with this. So, I mean, with David Price, I think David Price, if anybody could, you know, quote unquote, handle Boston, David Price seems like that sort of guy, but it, it does matter. And that's where the, that's where the size of the contracts matter too, because it's not just about, it's not just about your production. It's about the fact that when you come in and make this sort of money, for whatever reason, Boston's a place that people get really upset when you don't earn that money. Maybe it's because there's just so much focus. It's been interesting that, you know, for example, ex Red Sox outfielder Jacoby Ellsbury has gone to the Yankees, and it doesn't seem like he's been the lightning rod, despite making the money he's making and the production he's, you know, he's given the Yankees. It doesn't seem like he's been the lightning rod that, say, Pablo Sandoval has been. But that's, I mean, there's there can be a lot of negativity. Boston can be a very negative sports city, and yeah, it, it does matter. I don't know how you look for it. It's it's tough to look for it. I think that's why you you know you hope that your homegrown guys learn it along the way. But even those guys, like. You don't see it until you get there. I mean, it's not like playing in Double A Portland is going to prepare you for Boston either. It's, I don't know. It's it's a very difficult thing to put your finger on, but at the same time, it's clear Crawford and Sandoval stand out as the the two examples of people that it just seems like it hasn't worked for. And there were some comments not long ago by John Henry about the team perhaps relying less on analytics. Trying to interpret his comments, it sounds as if maybe he's just been burned a little bit by the fact that the projections have liked the Red Sox year after year, and yet the Red Sox have been bad for most of those years, except the year when they won the World Series. So what does that mean in practice to rely less on analytics or, you know, what are the practical effects of that? Because, of course, Dombrowski inherited a large analytics department with a sophisticated system. Is this just a difference in who's in the room making big decisions? Is it just less caution when it comes to certain contracts? Sam and I have both been reading Jeff Passan's book, The Arm, and you know, reading the chapter about John Lester and how the Red Sox were so conservative in their offer to him. And obviously that wasn't the case with David Price. So what is the actual impact of John Henry's comments or change in philosophy? It's hard to tell. I mean, we're still in the process of seeing that play out, but certainly you look at you look at the price signing versus John Lester. That's that's Exhibit A, and just looking at that, certainly, you know, putting aside those two guys as players, it did seem like the the analytics say 
don't sign pitchers on the wrong side of 30 to huge money contracts because there's at least a 50-50 shot that you're going to regret it at the back end. And that's, I mean, that's still the case. That's still, you know, you look at the Yankees with CC Sabathia now, there's a lot of money that they're going to be paying for not very much. So that's still the case. But I think, so in that example, I wonder if John Henry kind of came to the realization or the deci- decision that you can take that too far and that if you if you are trying to be too efficient in that way, you miss out on guys and they you know, dramatically undervalued John Lester. I mean, that first, the, the negotiation was terrible. And it does seem like they could have had him at some sort of reasonable cost, you know, five years and 115 million or something like that. And it didn't work. And in part, because it seemed like it was because the analytics said, don't pay for a guy over 30. And maybe he thought that was a little too hard and fast. The other thing that I wonder if it affects is some of these younger guys, these minor league guys that the projection systems, you know, you rely on because you're trying to figure out how these minor league numbers are going to project forward. And the Red Sox have been incredibly disappointed with what they've gotten from their farm system in, in the last few years. I mean, basically between Dustin Bedroya and Mookie Betts, they got just about nothing from their farm system. And you look at these guys like Lars Anderson and Garrett Cicchini and these prospects who hit in the minor leagues and it just did not translate at all. I wonder if, you know, he brings in Dabrowski, who's got a reputation as a really good evaluator of talent. And I think the hope is that if you step back from those numbers with some of those young guys and, you know, trying to project the equivalencies and all that, and just, you know, you look at Garen Cicchini and say, is that going to play? You know, is that swing? Is that defense? Is that going to play in the major leagues? And certainly you're not abandoning numbers. There's no, there's no way they're abandoning numbers. But I do think with some of these guys, they're, they're probably trying to put a little more, a little more scouting influence um, on figuring out which of these process, prospects they can keep and which guys they can trade because the last few years they've done a very poor job. You know, they kept Anderson, they kept Cicchini, and they traded away Josh Reddick, they traded away Anthony Rizzo. Last year with the uh, with the starting rotation, I sort of feel like there were almost echoes of the closer by committee debacle from a decade earlier where you know the Red Sox chose to build this rotation that didn't have like one real famous name at the top. They went with depth. They went with, uh, you know, some, I don't know, guys who might develop into uh, that, but, you know, weren't really there. And then it went, it went terribly and everybody sort of will remember it as being like the disaster of not having an ace. Uh, And so then they went out and they, they got an ace, but you know, in fact, the problem wasn't that probably that they didn't have an ace. It was that everybody that they did have was either terrible or, or hurt worse than expected or hurt. So they go into this year, they do have David Price at the top. That is 230 awesome, awesome innings that they're going to get. But the rest of the rotation still has three of the five guys they were counting on last year. And, uh, you know, it maybe will, it seems to me, we'll have some of the same potential big problems the other four days out of five that it did last year. Uh, talk about that. <laughs> so you're right the the ace thing i always felt like was overblown i mean it was it's so easy to look at you know people say you need an ace to win it's not that you don't need an ace to win per se it's just that who that ace is can be surprising and going out and signing the best pitcher doesn't make you the best team i mean you know when the red sox won in 2013 people looked back at that and said see you need a john lester to win and john lester had like the 30th best era plus in baseball or something ridiculous like that that regular season you know, he pitched like an ace in October, and obviously to win the World Series, you need somebody to pitch like an ace probably, though you know, last year the Kansas City Royals showed us that you can trade for Johnny Cueto and have Johnny Cueto not be particularly good and still win the World Series. So yeah, I always thought it was it was certainly more about Rick Porcello and Joe Kelly having ERAs around five that, that mattered more than whether or not John Lester was still there. And you know, Porcello, Kelly will still be there. They need both of those guys to be better. They need the defense behind them to be better because – their FIPS were a lot closer to four than five. So if the defense is better and they're slightly better, all of a sudden you're looking at pitchers with, you know, sub four ERAs, and that's not so bad at the back end of a rotation. They're, both of those are really important pitchers. Eduardo Rodriguez is potentially important um, as well, and he could blossom into that number two. You saw John Lester um, when he was young, 2007 comes up, pitches well down the stretch, pitchers in the World Series. By 2008, he's the best pitcher on the staff. By 2008, he's pitching game one of the ALDS against the Angels. So you could see that sort of growth from Rodriguez. The fact that he's going to miss a month you know, makes it a little tougher to talk about, and we don't totally know his, his return point yet, but you know, hope, they hope it's around May 1st probably. You know, Clay Buckholz is Clay Buckholz. He'll probably be really good when he's on the mound. He probably won't be on the mound for 30 starts. Um, it's really going to, it's going to be about Porcello and Kelly, and they don't have to be aces. They don't have to you – know, Joe Kelly doesn't have to win the Cy Young like he promised very weirdly last year that he would. Um, they just have to be good. 
And Kelly in particular has shown some signs that he's figured out how to use his secondary stuff, um, which is great, uh, by the way, that he that he's figured out how to pitch a little bit more. Certainly the catchers he's worked with have helped him, but that's when he went to the minor leagues, it was with the message that you can't just throw 96 at everybody. You have to use your curveball. You have to use your changeup. And I think that's why he's still in the rotation. A lot of people want to make him a reliever because he throws hard, but he has those pitches and they can work. And their hope is that he's figured out how to use them. He'll be 28 this season. And, you know, it, it seems like he's the sort of guy that could be a good three. And Porcello could be a good three. And Buckholz, when he's healthy, is a good two. And if Eduardo Rodriguez is a good two or three, all of a sudden it's a pretty good-looking starting rotation. Now that's the best-case scenario. Um, but but you can see how those pieces would work. I don't know if there's a team in the majors with more players who have a really wide range of plausible outcomes. And we just talked about some of them in the starting rotation. There are also a couple of them in the outfield. So what have you seen from Jackie Bradley and Rusni Castillo so far this spring? Are they going to be great or terrible? Because I could easily imagine either. Yeah, I could. I mean, you're right. That sums up this season perfectly that there's an enormous range of outcomes. Um, and yeah, for both of those guys, Bradley's such a weird case because basically he's an elite defender, but the fact that he couldn't hit cost him the gold glove two seasons ago because he hit so poorly, he had to be sent down in the minor leagues in August. He's a terrific defender. So he at least has that carrying skill. So you, if you're, if you're trying to be optimistic about one or the other, Bradley, you probably less so on the strength of those four just ridiculous weeks where he slugged 950 for I don't know why that happened and then stopped happening. That was one of the strangest four weeks, dis- four week displays of hitting I've ever seen. That's certainly not who he is, but he's he's at least got the defense as a carrying tool. In terms of Castillo, you know he could be a good defensive left fielder, and you know that that helps them. That'll help the starting rotation too. That the the outfield defensively looks like it could be very very good, which you couldn't say last year. So that could help things, but offensively. Man, he just keeps hitting ground balls to second, and it's really not encouraging at all. And last season, he didn't hit the ball in the air. And you know, you can you can be okay hitting the ball on the ground a lot, but you're not gonna you're not gonna be an impact certainly corner outfielder. I mean, you don't want your, your you don't want your left fielder slugging three ninety, and you could see Castillo slugging three ninety, and you know that's it's it's a lot of money. And it seemed like they they signed Castillo as a reaction to Bradley not being very good, and you know right now that doesn't it just looks like money poorly spent and it's tough to have a a fourth outfielder who you've got that sort of commitment to but at this point it's kind of a toss-up if you know if Travis Shaw wasn't competing to play a third base if he could play a passable defensive left field especially in home games you could see a platoon of Shaw and Chris Young that gives you more offensive production than Castillo is going to give you without killing you defensively so it's that's Castillo is probably the guy at this point you know, with the exception of maybe maybe Sandoval that I would kind of be most cynical about, most pessimistic about. But, I mean, he, he's athletic, and he's still in his prime, and he's still got some tools. He's got a lot of contact ability. It's just he's not hitting the ball very hard at all. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you just educated me about Bradley because, I mean, I saw his second half numbers and thought, oh, you know, he maybe that was a corner turned. And, uh, you know, he was really good in the second half. He showed he can do it. And uh, I didn't realize that in that he really did all that in like, like you say, three or four weeks. And from uh, it, over the final 25 games of the season, his final 100 or so plate appearances, he hit 138, 247, 263 for a 510 OPS. So that just makes him even, I mean, he was already endlessly fascinating. That makes him even more endlessly fascinating. Yeah, and he and he strikes out a lot, which in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. I mean, Curtis Granderson struck out a lot too as, you know, as a comparable sort of outfielder that could, you know, was a good defender. And, but yeah, I mean, it seems like there was a lot of fluke to those four weeks. It started, it started in Detroit and I can sort of remember it ended weirdly with a day at home, I think against the Blue Jays where he basically had four hits to, you know, down one line into one gap, into the other gap, down the other line. And then he was basically never heard from again the rest of the season. So, I mean, he doesn't have to, with his glove, he doesn't have to do much to be a useful player. I mean, he doesn't have to slug 500 like his overall number said he did last year. You know, if he hits 249, 335, which those were his numbers, batting average on base percentage, if it's 249, 335, 370, I mean, his slugging percentage could drop 100 points or more, and he's still a useful player with that glove. It's just, yeah, when he's not hitting, he's almost a zero, and then you wonder if if they can carry him. So we can close with two players that Red Sox fans probably can count on 
two guys who were both bright spots of the 2015 team, Betts and Bogarts. You recently wrote about their development. What changes are they making for 2016? Probably not too many. The thing that's Betts is interesting because Betts is he's trying to become a more well-rounded hitter because he pulls the ball so much. But in the same way as the guy who he's basically the second coming of, Dustin Pedroia, it seems like he's always going to do his damage to the pull side. He's not he's not strong enough to hit opposite field home runs, and his hands are ridiculously quick. So he gets to everything on the inner half, and he can still pull stuff on the outer half. And he just he's going to spray line drives around. the The one that's interesting is Bogarts. And, you know, maybe this doesn't happen this year, but everyone's assuming the power is going to come, um, and it it may. It's that's that's going to be one thing we're going to be watching is because he has the body. You know, he's twenty two and. He hit 35 doubles last year, and you look at him and you figure by the time he's 25, he's hitting 35 homers instead of 35 doubles. But just about everything he did last year was the opposite field. He he just loved whether the ball was away or whether it was on the inner half, he'd inside out into the opposite field. And you know, now the question is whether it's trust or whether it's a mechanical thing or or what, you know, it's a matter of doing some impact to the pull side and, and hitting some home runs when he gets a middle in fastball instead of being being happy inside out, outing it to the other to the opposite field. I think he led the major leagues in singles last year. And, you know, that's, he's a good player. I mean, he's a good defensive shortstop, which was not a guarantee when he was coming up and he finished, he hit 320 and got on base 355 last year. That's a good player. Um, but it seems like, you know, Betts certainly has MVP capability now. And if Bogarts is going to have that same sort of capability, you're going to see more power from him and, you know, where that comes from, how it goes and to what extent, you know, he risks wrecking the approach that worked pretty well for him last year by trying to be something more is something we're going to be watching all year. Okay. So give us your win total prediction for 2016. Are you envisioning more ping-ponging between extremes or will the Red Sox settle in somewhere in the middle? They're really due to settle in in the middle, aren't they? Like that's been, <laughs> that's been the strangest thing about this. They haven't been mediocre. Yeah. Some of these teams really should have been an 83 win team finishing in third place. And that's, I think that's what I'm going to say. That's what I think happens this year is that there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of variance or variance in the potential outcomes. So certainly you could see a scenario where this all comes together and, you know, and they run away with the American league East like they did in 2013, because certainly the East is not a, not a formidable division at this point. You could also see everything falling apart and them doing exactly what they've done the last two seasons. And I think the most likely scenario, you know, you probably get a better year from Hanley Ramirez. You're still disappointed by Sandoval. You're disappointed by Castillo. Maybe Kelly or Porcello is better. I think it does settle in in the middle and you're looking at an 83 or 84 win team. And the question there is, is do they make that sort of deadline move that gives them two more wins down the stretch and they win a wild card or do, or are they that third place team that's competitive, but misses the playoffs that they really haven't been. I mean, it's just these outcomes they've had, they, they haven't really been that sort of team since like 2006. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Brian. You can find Brian's writing at the Providence journal and find him on Twitter at Brian McPee. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me guys. All right, so after the break, you will hear the other half of this duo, Tim Britton talking to George Bissell. Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Perspectives. Joining me now is Tim Britton. He covers the Boston Red Sox for the Providence Journal, and he co-hosts one of my favorite shows, the Super 2 Podcast. You can follow him on Twitter, at Tim Britton. Tim, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. It's great to have you on the show. I just worry about how many uh, miscalculations that you just heard from Brian McPherson, my partner, in the first part of this podcast, and I'm going to have to correct. If you could let me know uh, where he led it, the, the listeners astray, uh, you just, just that will help me out tremendously. Good yeah, we'll, to be here, George. We'll we'll do our best. I got the scorecard in front of me. Uh, we're gonna have some fun. So, Tim, the Red Sox have finished in last place three out of the past four seasons. The one time they didn't, they won the World Series. That was in 2013, which uh, is uh, such a strange anomaly when you really go back and look at that year. 
Pakoda's exceptionally bullish on them this season, and after a tumultuous offseason in which they added free agent David Price and traded for closer Craig Kimbrell, do you think that the Sox are legitimate contenders in the American League East? And did they do enough to address some of their concerns, especially on the pitching side from a year ago? Uh, legitimate contenders, yes, and I think that probably says more about the American League and the American League East specifically than it does about the Red Sox in the sense that I think everyone in the American League is a legitimate contender in that division. Uh, we've talked about it uh, at the Providence Journal for a while, the last couple of years. It's just the flattening out of that division first, and then the, the whole uh, American League as a whole. Uh, you know, it used to be that the, the Yankees and Red Sox a decade ago were 96 wins and above, kind of year after year, and uh, the barrier of entry to be a legit contender in that division was so high. You look at where it's been the last, Maybe you go back to 2008 with the, the Rays coming on, or even 2010, 2011. Uh, you know, all five teams have won this division the past six seasons. Uh, they've all been to the playoffs uh, a couple of times. So it's, it's really a, a much flatter landscape than the, you know, moving from last place to first place, like the Red Sox are trying to do for the second time in the last couple of years, uh, is not as big a gap as it used to be. Uh, I think they, they finished 15 games behind Toronto last year in fifth place. You know, you look back, uh, <laughs> In 98, for instance, it was a 51-game difference between first and last. It's 114 win the Yankees in the first year of the Devil Rays, so maybe that's cherry-picking data a little bit. But the, the 15 games, I think, is the lowest that it's ever been in the history of the AL East. So it's, a, it's as tight as ever in the division. So moving up is easier uh, than it used to be. Uh, when you talk about what they did with the pitching staff, they, I mean, they made the most sensible move for them, which in this case was giving $217 million to a pitcher who had just turned 30 years old in David Price. Uh, that was, you know, I, I think I would have made the argument going into 2015 that you don't need an ace to succeed. I still think that. You look at the Royals last year, they probably, you know, they didn't really have an ace. Uh, maybe John Cueto in Game 2 of the World Series or, or Game 5 of the ALDS was an ace for them. But for the majority of the regular season, they did not have an ace uh, or anyone performing like one in their rotation. Uh, the Red Sox, though, with the way their rotation was set up, it was pretty clear that the easiest way to make this team a lot better was by signing David Price. And that's what Dave Dombrowski went out and did. You know, the day they hired Dombrowski, it was kind of, oh, they'll probably sign Price now. Uh, and that's what they did in November. The rest of the rotation, which hasn't had a very good spring to this point, uh, is certainly a question mark. The, the biggest problem they've had is, is Eduardo Rodriguez going on the shelf with a knee injury. We haven't seen him really at all in spring training. And he's the guy that you're kind of hoping steps up behind Price as that number two starter. Uh, Clay Buckles will, will start the second game of the season. Uh, we can talk about Clay Buckles. You know uh, this is the story with him. When he pitches, he's generally pretty good. He doesn't pitch a lot. Uh, Rick Porcello has been had a, a bad year in 2015 immediately after signing that, that long contract extension uh, and hasn't looked great in spring. Joe Kelly is, uh, you know, he's got upside, but we haven't seen He's got great stuff, but we haven't seen the results on a consistent basis. So there are certainly four question marks behind Price, and the Rodriguez injury probably takes away maybe the highest upside guy out of that group for the month of April. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the rotation depth because it seems like they certainly have a lot of names there, but uh, there's some question marks. Who do you think is the most important? You mentioned Rodriguez, but there are some health concerns at the moment with him. Uh, who's the most important guy that they need to step up that isn't Eduardo Rodriguez? Because it's hard to ask a guy in his second season uh, to, to really step to the front of the rotation. So who of those remaining arms do you think is the most important in terms of they need this guy to step up this year if they're going to win the division? You know, you can really go with any of those other three. The case for, for Buckles is, man, if, if he throws, not, I mean, not even 200 innings, if he throws 175 or 180 innings of what he did last year when he was outside of one 10-run disaster in his second start of the season in the Bronx, a pretty good pitcher for them. Uh, you know, a guy who, whose fifth was up there in the top 10 in the American League when he was healthy. If he can be that, well, then that's a legit number two. Uh, I, I, I would probably side with Porcello because uh, the ERA was up around five last year. Uh, if he can be the pitcher he was, I think it was his last eight starts of the year, where he went back to throwing his two-seamer down in the zone more often. He had flirted with a four-seamer up uh, for much of the, the first four months, trying to be kind of more of a strikeout pitcher, uh, live up to the contract extension, and that's the talk of maybe being a, this uh, breakout ace that, that Boston had, had put on his shoulders. Uh, if he can be just what he was in 2014 in Detroit, which is a sinker baller who gets ground ball uh, and who gives you you know, not, he's not going to be a, a top line starter, but a guy who gives you a 3-4 ERA and, and goes out and wins 14 games for you. 
that that can change things for this rotation because the offense isn't that you know the offense is going to be pretty good. Uh, they they don't need ace like performance one through five in the rotation. They need confidence from those from those two through five spots, uh, and that's what they didn't get last year. Speaking of uh, competent starters, the guy they traded away was Wade Miley. They dealt him to Seattle for Carson Smith, and that's maybe the biggest story for the Red Sox this spring is that Smith suffered a forearm injury over the weekend. He's reportedly going to start the year on the disabled list, and the lack of quality bullpen depth behind Koji Uehara was a huge problem for the Sox last year, and they committed significant resources to addressing that this winter. Smith's going to miss a significant chunk of the season. Is this a much larger loss for the Red Sox than it would just appear to be on the surface that they're losing a setup guy? Yeah, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out exactly how long he's going to be out because it's a strain of the, the flexor mass, which is, uh, you know, it, it, we saw Andrew Miller miss about a month of it last year. Uh, guys like Homer Bailey and Matt Latos, it's been more significant time that they missed when they were in Cincinnati. Mm. Uh, so we're, we're trying to get our hands around that exactly. And Smith, obviously, the way he throws his slider 45% of the time at that ridiculous arm angle, there was always this risk involved with acquiring him for Wade Miley. And what you know, I think a lot of people thought was a coup, but when you throw in the health risk that Smith has, maybe it's not as big a win uh, for Dombrowski and co. But you look at, at what they did in the bullpen otherwise. Uh, last year, by the end of the season, when Tazala was shut down, when Uohara was hurt, you had Robbie Ross closing out games and he was being set up by Gene Machi. Uh, <laughs> not a great look in September, especially for, especially for beat writers. It's tough to write deadline game stories when you don't think anyone in the bullpen can hold a two- or three-run lead. Uh, so they, you know, they've got Kimbrell in the back end. They, they made the big trade for him. They gave up, uh, some significant prospect costs, uh, to San Diego for Kimbrell. You move Uahara into the eighth, and Tazawa is now kind of your seventh inning guy. Uh, and, and, you know, you had four guys for those three innings, basically, with Smith, which gives you a little bit of flexibility in case you don't want to pitch Kimbrell too many days, or especially Uahara as a 41 year old setup man. Uh, they, they're going, they want to be easy on the innings with him and Tazawa, who's had workload concerns the past couple of years. The bullpen's certainly in a better spot than it was uh, at the end of last season. It would have been hard not to be, but I don't, I wouldn't put it up there uh, with, with the bullpen that the Yankees have uh, at this point, or, or, you know, the Royals or the Pirates or those kinds of teams, especially with Smith missing time. The other major storyline for the Red Sox this spring, aside from Hanley Ramirez at first base, which we'll get to in a moment, is Travis Shaw, who, in addition to tearing the cover off the ball, he's really developed almost like a cult following among Boston fans at this point. He checks all the boxes of you know the Trot Nixon uh, type of guy. He's the blue-collar, gritty, all-out effort guy who just goes out and does his job. Is there a real competition here right now between Shaw and Pablo Sandoval at third base, and what type of role do you envision Shaw having this season because he certainly played well enough to make this team and potentially start. Well, John Farrell has said in the past uh, four or five days, past week, that there is an open competition for for Shaw to get regular at bats. You know, especially at third base, where Pablo Sandoval has looked pretty bad defensively. You know, he, he was bad defensively last season. One of the, I think defensive run saves had him as the worst third baseman in baseball, which was a, a, a major downgrade from where he had been in the time in San Francisco. If he looks that bad defensively, then, then that's, you know, Shaw came up as a third baseman and then moved to first base because the Red Sox had Will Middlebrooks and Garen Cicchini and so much third base inventory. Uh, and now, you know, he, he played there a little bit last year. And now he's looked fine in spring. Uh, I think they're saying there's a competition. I still think it's Sandoval's job to lose by a fair margin. Uh, and I think the fact that it is a competition says more to about what how little Sandoval has has done this spring compared to how much Shaw has done. He's, he's like 18 for 37 or something like that, uh, ridiculous in spring. Uh, but you know we've learned with the Red Sox in the past couple of years not to trust the spring training stats too much with Bradley in 13 and Grady Sizemore in, in 2014. So I, I think there is a chance for Shaw to win that opening day job. I wouldn't put a good percentage on it, maybe 10 percent. But uh, either way, I think we'll see him. Get, get more regular playing time than a usual reserve, and certainly more than I would have expected coming into spring form. You know, maybe he starts uh, one out of every three games at third early in the season with another start at first uh, for Hanley Ramirez at times. Uh, I think, you know, we've seen the Red Sox use Brock Holt in that kind of role, you know, moving him around defensively, but having him as a, a fairly regular presence in the lineup. Uh, and maybe they do the same thing with Shaw at the corner position. They'll also talk about getting some time in left field, but we just haven't seen that yet this spring. Thank you for bringing up Grady Sizemore. I had completely blocked that out of my memory, so uh, appreciate this is, that. This is the time of this is the time of spring where you remember uh, who you wrote about on a daily basis two years ago. 
Lots of Mike Carp stories floating around out there. What are your initial impressions of Hanley Ramirez at first base, and do you think he's capable enough defensively to remain there all season, or are they going to have to look for alternatives at some point? How has he looked so far this spring to you? I would say pleasantly surprising uh, in a good way. You know, when I, when I was talking to people at the end of last year about whether uh, the Red Sox could, could take Ramirez seriously as a first baseman going forward, I remember talking to guys like Brock Holt and Travis Shaw about how difficult it is to learn that position. Shaw said that, you know, to get the footwork down took him a year. And that was a guy who had been, a, you know, at the opposite corner at third. Holt said that was among the toughest positions for him to learn on the fly the way he did in 2014, where he learned every position on the fly. Uh, so I just didn't, I wasn't sure that Ramirez would be able to, to adapt uh, in the limited time that he would have in spring to that position. And, you know, coming off a year where he couldn't adapt to, to left field, which is, you know, a position with fewer responsibilities play to play uh, and where he just really had to be able to judge fly balls better, uh, which is what he could not do uh, at any point last season. But we've seen him appear, I think the word the rest I could use is more engaged. Uh, and I think being on the infield and being part of the play-to-play action has actually served Ramirez well because he's got to be thinking about what his responsibilities are in every play. You can't, you know, you can get, you can get lost in left field a little bit, uh, as, you know, the worst players in Little League can remind us. Uh, so with having Ramirez at first, he's, you know, he feels the ground ball is fine. I didn't think that would be an issue. His footwork has been generally pretty good. Uh, we see him make a couple of scoops in the dirt. You know, he's, he has, there's been a couple others that he hasn't made that a normal first baseman would, uh, but he's come around on that a little bit. Uh, we've even seen him make a nice play on a cutoff to get a runner, to throw behind a runner uh, on a play uh, at the plate. So he's doing all those little things that you would like to see him do in spring, and he's been challenged more this spring than he was last year when, curiously, he didn't have a lot of balls hit to him in left field, so he didn't quite realize uh, how far he had to grow as a defender. So I think the, the, the Red Sox have to be happy with where he is. It's kind of remarkable that, that Shaw is having the spring that he's having, and the person we're talking about him replacing isn't Ramirez, it's Sandoval, because of Sandoval's defensive concerns rather than Hanley's. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's uh, really surprising that that's uh, been the case, because I don't think anybody thought that a month ago. Uh, how important is it for the Red Sox to have Christian Vasquez back behind the plate, and how do you see them splitting up the, the workload there between him and Blake Swihart, who was really good last season despite being rushed to the majors a little bit earlier than I think they had envisioned? Yeah, I think in an ideal world, Blake Swihart would have spent the entire year in AAA, uh, and you know, Vasquez wouldn't have had Tommy John surgery, and Ryan Hannigan wouldn't have hurt his finger in, in May, and they wouldn't have finished in last. That's <laughs> a lot of things went wrong last season. But one of the things that went right was the way Swihart played, especially the second half of the year when he, you know, he, he was kind of just trying to tread water when he first got called up in May. Uh, and by the second half, I, I don't have his second half numbers off the top of my head, but I think he hit, uh, he had the highest average among AL catchers after the All-Star break, hit something like 310. Uh, with a good on-base percentage and a little bit of pop. Uh, the defensive numbers on him are a little uh, worrisome, and we have to see him grow as a defender, because when you talk about Vasquez, Rick Porcello today threw a minor league game to Vasquez for six innings and just raved about just how well he received the ball. Uh, such a great target for him, uh, and, and has an amazing arm that we've all talked about. Even coming back from Tommy John surgery, Vasquez still has probably, you know, a, a top three or five arm on a catcher in the American League. So I think the Red Sox want to be patient with him. I wouldn't surprise me still. Uh, I would still guess that he's going to start the year in AAA, although we've heard the Red Sox maybe change their tone on that a little bit the last couple of days. Uh, but you still do have Hannigan. Uh, Swihart is still the everyday catcher. But uh, maybe you get into a, a month or two into the season. Vasquez has shown that he's back from his injury uh, and is you know, he's showing stride, not just defensively, but offensively, because that's, you know, that's where the weakness in his game is with the bat. Right. Uh, maybe they decide to move Hannigan. A team could always use a veteran catcher like that on a reasonable deal the way Hannigan has. Uh, maybe they decide, you know, if they need a, if they need to make a bigger splash in July, maybe they decide to, to make a decision between Swihart and Vasquez as their catcher of the future, uh, depending on, you know, whose weakness advances the most, whether it's Vasquez's bat or Swihart's glove. We haven't talked at all about David Ortiz, who's a, a living legend in Boston. He's about to embark on his farewell tour. From your conversations with him and people around the organization, what's his goal for this year? Because he hit the 500 home run mark last year. Uh, he's won World Series. Uh, what's still driving him at this point, and, and what's sort of the thing he's talked about that's his goal for his final season? All he's, all he's talked about, uh, is trying to win another World Series, trying to win a fourth one with the Red Sox. I think 
because he was able to, to reach that 500 mark last year. You know, there, there was a time last June when he's sitting on, I want to say like six home runs the first week of June, uh, and hitting below, you know, hitting like 100 against left-handed pitchers. And people are wondering if he's just going to stick around another year just to get to 500. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he, he turned that around just a little bit the last four months of the year. Uh, because he got to 500 last year, he doesn't have to worry about kind of that individual goal. Uh, and the thought is more on this nice team-oriented idea of trying to go out on top. Uh, so that's that's what his focus has been. Uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of what the the league-wide interpretation of, of Ortiz is because he doesn't strike me, at least, as the uh, nationally beloved figure the way Jeter was or even Mariano Rivera. Uh, so I'm interested to see how other teams celebrate Ortiz. But overall, I mean, he's, he's 40 years old. He's still the linchpin to this offense. He's still going to hit. I'll probably clean up on opening day. Uh, if he doesn't have the kind of year he did, uh, he has the last couple as a 30-100 slugger still, uh, then this offense isn't going to be as good as the Red Sox expected to be. Uh, so that, that's the remarkable thing is just how important he still is to this team's success. How long does manager John Farrell realistically have? If this team struggles out of the gate, how long is it before Dave Dombrowski decides to go in another direction? Well, I, I think he's got longer than the six games that Dombrowski gave Phil Garner uh, his first year in Detroit. Uh, I actually talked to, I actually talked to Dombrowski about that and he laid out the various differences between where that Tigers organization was at the time and where the Red Sox are now. Clearly the expectations are different. Uh, and maybe there is a burden on Farrell in that regard. You know, we'll see. It's, it, it's a complicated thing because he is coming back, uh, from, uh, overcoming cancer at the end of last season and into the off season, but that's in remission. He's looking, mean, it's, it's been kind of business as usual for him in spring and that's been really nice to see. Uh, you also have in bench coach Tori Lavello, a prime managerial candidate, the guy who led the team, I think they went 28 and 20 down the stretch with Lavello at the helm, uh, a guy who signed back on agreeing to postpone his managerial aspirations for at least a year uh, in case Farrell couldn't come back from his health issues as quickly as he has. Uh, as far as uh, a time frame on when he gets in trouble, you know, if this team, you know, maybe it's the end of April, like if this team is, you know, 12 and 18 at the end of the month or something like that. Uh, if they, they don't appear to be having the kind of turnaround that they, they need to have or, or playing with the kind of urgency that Farrell has talked about all spring, that's been a word he's used a lot. And that's one of the reasons I think they're talking about Sandoval and Shaw as a competition is because the team knows it urgently needs to get off to a good start. Uh, maybe they start to think about a change at that point. I, I don't like trying to guess on when someone's going to be fired or not. I, I think if they have the kind of season they expect to have, it will be because Farrell has managed them well and is still in his job uh, going into next year. All right, Tim, you knew it was coming. Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts, they're both legitimate franchise cornerstones. They took huge steps forward last year. Unquestionably, I think they're the most important players on the team for the better part of the next decade. Are the Red Sox actively exploring long-term extensions with either of them at this point? And if you had to pick between the two, let's say John Henry, as soon as we, we finish this interview, he gives you a call and says, Tim, I'm going to choose one of these guys and give him a contract extension right now, and you can only pick one. Who do you choose? Well, fortunately, I'd have uh, plenty of time to think about it while I pick my jaw off the floor from getting a call from John Henry. <laughs> um, no, I, I think um, between those two, I mean, I, I don't want to – I doubt they're actively, putting that in quotes, actively looking at an extension right now. Right. Uh, you know, and it, it's tough to say because there's a new front office with Dombrowski. Like, if if Ben Sherrington were still here and kind of the, the old way things operated, this would be about the time they would start to have that conversation with those guys. Bogarts would be arbitration eligible, I think, after this season. Betts has another uh, after that before he becomes arbitration eligible. So there's plenty of time, and the Red Sox certainly aren't in the position that, like, the Rays or the Pirates are where they want to control even the arbitration cost. The Red Sox have no problem going year to year in arbitration. So there's there's not as much urgency to get an extension done with those guys. That said, you know, Bogart is a Scott Morris client and Mookie Betts isn't. Uh, and I think Betts is probably at this point has probably surpassed Bogart as the, the franchise cornerstone the way he played last year. That if they were going to explore, if they, you know, if Henry calls me and there's only one, I, I'd probably go in the Betts direction. It's probably easier to get it done because you don't have Boris to deal with. Uh, and because of the way he's played the last couple of years. Uh, which is just uh, a, a crazy ascension that he's had. You know, at the start of the 2013 season, Mookie Betts was the worst hitter in A-ball in, his, in the South Atlantic League. Uh, and now he's, you know, this stealth MVP candidate uh, and borderline all-star already. 
they're they're both pretty unbelievable. And for the record, I, I think they're going to be able to sign both if they really wanted to. I think they're in a position financially they they could get it done. It was just a creative way of asking the question at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Boston. If we know one thing, it's they have the money if yeah. they want to. So uh, it, it would not surprise me. Like Bogarts, I talked to him a little bit about it. Uh, because, you know, the Red Sox gave him more, you know, a little bit more money than the league minimum for a guy with his service time. Uh, and he said that, you know, you really appreciate when an organization does something like that for you and it makes you want to, it makes you think about staying in the organization longer term, which, you know, we'll see what happens when, when he sits down at the negotiating table with the Red Sox and with Boris. Yeah, they didn't Garrett Cole him, I guess, which is which is good for morale. Uh, final question for you, Tim. What's the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with the Red Sox in 2016? Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I know you've asked this of everyone, and there's so many different ways you can go. Whether it's it's how Beth continues his progress as a young player, what David Price does in his first season in Boston. Uh, whether someone in that rotation can step up, whether you know, just watching Craig Kimbrell pitch on a regular basis should be a lot of fun. But I think the thing that intrigues me the most is just how differently does this front office operate versus the ones that we're used to in Boston because that shift from Charrington to Dombrowski last August uh, was as big a shift as this team has had since the new ownership had come in in 2002. You know, going from Theo Epstein to Ben Charrington was relatively seamless, at least philosophically. So Dombrowski, we've already seen, has represented a different kind of mind in that present of baseball ops mold uh, where, you know, they traded prospects for Kimbrell. They went out and signed a pitcher in his 30s the way they didn't just, you know, the year before with John Lester. So I, I'm interested in seeing, you know, what what kind of urgency do they display early in the season if Pablo Sandoval uh, doesn't play well or if Hanley Ramirez, you know, regresses as a first baseman from what we've seen in spring training and needs to be replaced. Uh, just how much urgency do they display? And, you know, how willing would Dombrowski be, let's say, the month of July if they're a couple games out and they need that second starter that we feel like they might need? How willing is he to make another big splash and pay the price in prospects to get someone here in Boston? I think that's going to be the most interesting thing to watch. Tell you what, Tim, no shortage of storylines for you to write about on a daily basis. You're not going to struggle there. That is the fun thing about covering this team. Tim, thanks once again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Anytime, George. Thank you. So that's going to do it for our conversation with Tim Britton. You can check out his Boston Red Sox coverage all season long in the Providence Journal. You can also follow him on Twitter at Tim Britton. And now let's send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. All right, that's it for the Red Sox preview. Thank you to Brian and Tim for coming on. I don't know how one paper gets to keep both of those guys, but its readers and Red Sox fans are lucky to have them. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five people who did, who I want to thank today, Jason Nasi, Scott Kramer, Pete Eckert, Hugh Perry, and Elisa Gale. You can buy our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and it's the story of how Sam and I took over the baseball operations department of an independent league team, the Sonoma Stompers, last summer. It comes out on May 3rd, and you can pre-order it now at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or message us through Patreon. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and you can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. We will be back tomorrow with a preview for a Red Sox division rival, the Tampa Bay Rays. 